Thank you. Our scripture text this morning comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Here ends the reading of God's Word. We're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of 2 Timothy, and there is a danger for us in this text that wasn't there when Paul first wrote it, not for his first audience. He's getting very practical now. He's telling Timothy exactly what he needs to do in the context of a very dark world. It's a world that has fallen away from God, and it threatens to draw people in the church away from God as well. And it's in that context that Paul tells Timothy there's several things that you have to do. You need to preach, you need to teach, you need to work as an evangelist. Here's the danger. Those are things that sound to our ears like they belong to the domain of a very small group of highly trained religious professionals. And it doesn't sound like they actually belong to the church as a whole, to every person in the church. And the reason that we hear those words that way, or, or that we can be tempted to hear them that way, is because we're used to the modern world being divided up into various spheres, various occupations, professions. And each sphere has its own narrow focus, what it's trying to do. It has its own internal logic. It's guided by its own practices that are performed by a limited number of practitioners. It's guided by its own professionals. And we expect then that there is little crossover from one sphere to the other. So when your air conditioner needs to be repaired, you don't call your dentist. You don't call your cardiologist. You don't even call an electrician. You call someone in HVAC. And if you're not quite sure that that person is being completely honest with you or if they're competent, you might get a second opinion, but you're still going to get a second opinion from someone within HVAC. You're not going to look outside. Fancy term that sociologists use, call this the process of differentiation. It's a process that allows a society to become increasingly complex so that it can adjust more quickly to changes in the larger environment but that process then informs how you and I think not only about life in the modern world, but about the Scripture. So when Paul says things like preach, teach, evangelist, our minds filter those words through the way that we've learned to think about professions, which can then lead us to think this morning, okay, this is a really important passage for Pastor Dan or Nick or Bill or maybe the elders but it really has little to do with me. And so the danger this morning is that you will listen politely, 
without realizing that God is speaking through Paul here directly to you because he's speaking to every one of his people. So before I get to what we need to do to live faithfully in this world that tries to pull us away from the faith, I want to start off by showing us first how you can know that God is speaking to you here. Then second, the reasons that you need to take God seriously. And only then, third, what you need to do. Okay, so three things for today. How you know that God is speaking to you, why you need to take him seriously, and what you need to do. So how do you just not fade out now, think about lunch for the next 40 minutes? How do you know this is to you? One way is by remembering what we learned earlier in chapter 2, verse 2. That Timothy has a responsibility. And that responsibility is to take what he heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses and entrust that to faithful men who will what? Who will be able to teach others also. So Timothy's job is to disciple people who will what? They will disciple people who will what? Who will disciple people on and on down through the ages until what? Until eventually hundreds and a couple thousand years later, one of those discipled people disciples you so that what? You will disciple others. So what Paul tells Timothy to think and to do is supposed to then get passed on down through the ages so that it becomes what you and I think and do. So that what was said to Timothy is also said to us. You notice back in chapter 2 that what qualifies people to hear and to teach others, what qualifies people to be discipled and to disciple others, is not what we're used to hearing. Paul does not say to Timothy, take what you've heard from me and entrust it to professionals who will be able to teach others. Plenty of religious professionals who can't teach or who teach things that are not true. Being a professional is not what qualifies you here. Instead, he says, take what you've heard from me and entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What qualifies you to be discipled and to disciple is whether or not you're faithful. Not whether you're gifted, charismatic, come from the right social class, went to the best schools, have the best training. What qualifies you is whether or not you hold on to what God has said without changing it so that it shapes your life, so that it makes you more like Christ. If that's the case for you, then everything that Paul says to Timothy, including chapter 4 today, everything applies to you as well. Because the distinction in Paul's mind is not between professionals and lay people. The distinction is between faithful Christians and non-faithful Christians. That's one way you know that chapter 4 is to you. Second way is by dropping down to the last phrase in verse 5. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. If you think again like a modern person, then you think in terms of occupations. And from within that mindset, ministry is what someone does who's part of a church staff, part of a missions agency, something like that. And that's not how God thinks about ministry. Instead, he has given every single one of his people an important role in serving his kingdom. A role that has to do with building up his church and with advancing the knowledge of him to people who don't yet know him. And God calls this role ministry. 
Very briefly, let me read from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning verse 11. And he, meaning Christ, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers for a purpose. He gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And you hear there what God does. God gives certain people to his church as gifts. He gives apostles and prophets, etc., not to do the work of the church, not to be a professional religious class of people, but he gives them as gifts to the church to equip all the rest of us, all the rest of the church, for what? For the work of ministry, for the work of building up the body of Christ. God gives each one of his children, each one of you, me, a certain ministry, something that is specific to each of us that you and I then need to do so that his church becomes what he intends her to be. You hear the same thing in the book of Revelation. We saw this last summer when we were studying. In chapter 5, verse 9, those who are surrounding the Lord sing a song to him. And they sing to him, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Here's the reason. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's how God thinks of you. That's how God thinks of every single one of his children, that you are now a priest to serve him. Because Jesus, our great high priest, at incredible cost to himself, bought you for that purpose. He ransomed you, gave you a specific ministry. One where what? Where you represent God to the people around you and where you intercede with God on their behalf. In other words, God gave you the very best thing that he has to offer, a life that keeps you constantly engaged with him. I've been reading through the Old Testament recently, and I'm struck one more time by when the Israelites come into the land of Canaan, the Promised Land, I'm struck by how the, the Levites don't inherit any land. God gives all the rest of the tribes their own particular geographical space, but not the Levites. And it almost seems unfair. As you read along, you read Joshua 14, verse 2, that while other tribes are getting their inheritance, that to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. Or that verse 3, no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in. It's not until you get to chapter 18 that you're reminded why this is. Verse 7, that the Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. Why don't they have something physical to call their own? It's because they have something better. They have the Lord. They have a life calling that constantly takes them into the presence of the Lord. Something that is of much greater value than anything else God could ever give. And that incredible gift that you hear about in the Old Testament is now what Jesus has won for every single one of his people. That now our life calling takes us constantly into his presence. So tomorrow morning, you're going to go to work. 
Some of you might go to school. You go to the food store, to a restaurant, coffee shop, to the gym back home. Not once will you walk out of the presence of the Lord. But instead, as priest, you'll enter every single one of those physical, geographical places representing him. You'll enter those spaces with the ministry that's been given to you by him to make him known wherever you are. God has plans to impact this world through you, to influence the people around you because of what he's given to you. You have a ministry to the people around you because Jesus has made you a priest of our God. And so the words, fulfill your ministry, are something that every Christian hears inside their heart from God's Spirit. Because ministry is not a profession that's limited to just a few Christians. It's a calling on your life. It's a calling on the life of every believer. A calling that encompasses every part of your life. A calling that orients how you approach and interact with every single person in your life. And so the question this morning is not, do you have a ministry? The question is, are you fulfilling the ministry that you have? the one that God's given you? Are you taking it seriously? Or have you put that on the shelf? If this is a new way to think for you, or if this is something you've known but sort of has drifted off your radar, one of the best ways to enter into it, or, or to enter into it more fully, is to think about the people that God has put into your life. Again, because of how our society has taught us to think about the professions, we tend to think in structural terms when we think about ministry. And so we think of organizational charts of who reports to whom in a, an official ministry. We think of vision and mission statements. We think of specific activities that are ministry-focused. And what gets lost in that kind of thinking is the focus of ministry, which is the people that God has called us to minister to. So if you're going to take your ministry seriously, you have to take God's sovereignty seriously. See, you weren't born a couple hundred years ago. You're not living in a far-off country. Instead, God gave you life so that you live here and now in what? In a web of relationships of utterly unique images of God to whom you are now called to minister. Part of taking ministry seriously means taking your relationships seriously. It means thinking about them through the lens of ministry. It means that you think about your family or the people that you live with as your primary ministry field. Do you do that? Do you, do, do you wake up and think, how will I help my spouse today? How will I help my children, my parents? This is not just for adults, this is for youth. How will I help my roommate? How will I help them see God in all of his glory? How will I help them to see his power, his justice, his love a little bit better today than they would have if I weren't here? Do you wake up thinking like that? That's what it means to embrace and to fulfill your ministry. Do you find yourself praying 
for help throughout the day. You see the needs of the people that you're called to minister to. You know they need that help. You're not quite sure how to do that, and so you turn to the Lord and pray. Do you head off to school or work thinking, this is my God-ordained ministry field today? This is not, first and foremost, a place where I get my professional identity, a feeling of worth and value. It's not, first and foremost, a place that helps me earn a living. But more than anything else, this is a place where God has called me to be his priest, where he has set me apart for his purposes. And I will not be happy today unless I can communicate him in some way to the people around me. Do you think like that at work? In your neighborhood? In whatever other organizations you're part of? Do you think like that in those random chance encounters that you have with complete strangers? This is a God-ordained ministry moment. See, that's the big picture. God, through you, wants to reach the people to touch their lives and impact them that he's given you to know. He wants to give them a sense of himself, what he's about through you as you minister to them. God is not talking to professionals here, professionals here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's talking to you because he's given you a ministry that no one else can fill. That's point one, how you know that God is speaking to you this morning. Point two, why do you have to take him seriously? Paul starts off, verse one, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. I charge you. What, what, what is that? What's a charge? It's an obligation that Timothy now has. There is a solemn task in front of him, and that task is given to him with various reasons for why he has to carry it out. Now, the language of charge, that might sound strange to us, but the concept is something that we're all familiar with. Maybe you had parents who told you something like, you have to do well in school. You have to do well in life because of what we sacrificed for you so that you could have this opportunity. That's a charge. Here's the obligation. You have to do well. Here's the reason, because we sacrificed for you. Very similar to when your boss at work gives you a new project and then tells you, oh, and by the way, don't screw up because we're all counting on you. Here's the obligation. Don't screw up. Here's the reason. We're counting on you. It's a charge. Or it's when you hear, you need to take better care of the planet. That's the obligation. For the reason of the sake of future generations. Here's the obligation, here's the reason. We're very familiar with charges in our lives. But not all charges have the same weight. And so you don't feel the same way about each of them. Future generations, you think, yeah, they're important, but they don't feel real immediate, kind of distant. You have no real relationship with them. It's a charge, but it's a little weak. Co-workers, on the other hand, are much more immediate. You feel the weight a little bit more. You can see the faces of the people that you don't want to let down. A charge from your parents carries even greater weight, for good or bad. Even if you don't accept the responsibility that they try to lay on you, you still feel the seriousness of their charge. 
When Paul thinks about Timothy, thinks about Timothy's ministry, he recognizes that ministry comes from God. And so Paul appeals to God in his charge in order to give this charge the weight that it deserves. I charge you in the presence of God. There's a seriousness here, a weightiness that is unmatched anywhere else in the whole universe. There is no other reason, no other relationship that can compete with this charge. It is way beyond all the others. The charge does not have its basis in Paul or in any human being, but it comes from God himself. Now let me just take a brief aside here and recognize that it is very possible to misuse authority in the church. And some of you have experienced that firsthand. It's possible to use God, to claim things come from him when they don't, as a way of manipulating people to get them to do what you want them to. That's possible. That is not what's going on here. Paul appeals to God, charges Timothy in God's presence. Why? Because the ministry that Timothy has doesn't come from Paul. It comes from God. And so Paul doesn't say something like, I charge you because of our deep relationship, because of how many years you and I have worked together, because of all the good that we've done. Paul doesn't make it about himself because it isn't about him. The ministry comes from God, which means that the charge has to be anchored in God, no greater weight. But it's also anchored in Christ Jesus. That's not an afterthought. If you look back at verse 1, you realize that it's not anchored in the person of Christ like it's anchored in the person of God. It's anchored in the activities of Christ, specifically in his future activities. Timothy has a charge because Jesus is coming to judge every person, living and dead, and because he is going to bring his kingdom at his future appearance. In other words, Paul says that this charge comes with the weight of God himself, and with the weight of what God in Christ is doing as he finishes restoring this universe. And so effectively, Paul's saying, because of that future, that very definite future, Timothy, you have a job to do when? Now. God's future actions dictate your present actions. Look down the road. Believe that what God has said he will do through his Messiah, through Jesus. Believe what he said about the future And now line yourself up in the present with that future. Make what you do now line up with what he will do later. Okay, that's one reason that Timothy is to do certain things. It's in the presence of God and what God's doing. There's also a second reason in this passage. It's not part of the charge. But it's a reason that tells you why this is necessary. It's verse 3. For the time is coming... When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 3 that there are going to be terrible times in the last days, in the times that we live in, that people will be radically self-absorbed, they'll be hedonistic, materialistic, they'll be lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. And here we learn that even people in the church will struggle to want something better, better than being absorbed with this world, that people in the church will not endure sound teaching. They won't put up with it. They'll be bored by it. Why? 
because it'll conflict with what they want to hear. They'll have itching ears, ears to hear certain things and ears that don't want to hear certain other things. They'll come primed to hear certain things, to hear teaching that is not sound, teaching that does not line up with what God is doing in the world. Now, why is that? Because they look for teachers to suit their own passions, their own desires. Now, some of you may be wondering about that word passions. Is that the same word that we talked about a couple weeks ago? Is that that epithumia word? Yes, it's the same root word that we talked about. It's a word that means desires that are just really, really strong, super desires. Desires that in this context are excessive desires. Desires that take over the person so that they're driven by those desires and they don't want sound teaching. They don't want to hear what God has to say. They're driven to worship something other than to worship God. And so they are more passionate about something else other than God, more passionate about something he's not passionate about. In other words, these are not just neutral desires. They may have at one time been a good thing to want, but now that they are excessive. They oppose God and what God wants. And Paul gives you a sense here of how that works. These passions, these super desires, control the person, drive them, and then they seek out teachers who will say things that agree with those passions. They're looking for teachers who will say things that support and affirm what they already want, that will justify what they already want, that will say that what you want is good, you should pursue that, even if that puts you at odds with what the Lord has said. And when those desires are entrenched and they're in control, they'll turn you away from sound teaching. Because sound teaching won't support those desires, it will challenge them. And so if you're someone like this, when you hear sound teaching, you'll hear the challenge to your desires and you won't want it. You'll be annoyed by it, won't put up with it, won't endure it. Instead, verse 4, you'll turn away from it and wander off into myths. Be careful of that word myth there, because that's what people do today just as much as they ever did. See, what were the myths in the Greco-Roman world? They were the stories that communicated the underpinnings of the society. They were the stories that communicated the philosophy of the society. They communicated the ethics of the society. And people told these myths, these stories, so that you could indoctrinate new people into the society. Here's what our society is all about. And they told them to reinforce the philosophies and the ethics to those who are already part of the society. And so the myths, the stories, introduced you to the principles that governed the society. And they told you stories about people who either leaned into those principles, worked with them, or they told you stories about people who transgressed those principles. And in that sense, the myths were a vehicle to communicate things like moral instruction. So that you learn, do this, don't do that. They taught you cultural values. Aspire to this, reject that. They laid out the various acceptable pathways so that you learned, here's how to succeed, here's how to fail. In other words, the myths taught you how to be a good citizen, somebody who understood your society, someone who knew how to navigate it well. 
And what Paul says to Timothy is that a time is coming when people will not want to hear what God has to say. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They'll listen to what they're used to hearing their society tell them. They'll be used to listening to what's familiar and they will substitute familiarity for the truth. And so the charge to Timothy does come in light of what God is going to do, but it's also a necessary charge because of the state of people, that we long to have other people tell us what we want to hear, what, tell us what we're used to hearing. And so there's a weight on Timothy. It's a weight on you and me, because we live in a world where people don't have a taste for truth, don't recognize their need of it, won't always want it, we have an obligation to act based first on what God is doing in the world as we look to the future, and we have an obligation to act secondly based on the present need of our world. We can't just go along through life telling people what they want to hear, just mouthing our modern day cultural myths to each other. Instead, we have this charge laid on us, which then brings us to point three, to what we need to do all in verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In light of the coming judgment, in light of people's present idolatry, their passion to hear what they want to hear, in light of how overwhelming all of that is, what can you possibly do? Four things. Four things in verse 2 that are essential for you to fulfill your ministry, whatever it is. First, preach the word. That does not mean sign up for a slot on a given Sunday and stand behind the pulpit. That's, again, our professionalism that makes us think that what Paul is talking about here is a formal activity. Instead, this phrase is more generic than that. It has the sense of proclaim the word. Make sure that the people you come in contact with know what God says, and make sure that they know the reasons why he says what he says. That's the teaching part at the end of the verse. Don't just tell people what God says. Explain why that's important for people to hear. And notice here that Paul doesn't say, proclaim the Bible, proclaim the scriptures. And say he's a little more specific here. When he says the word, he's tying what God has said in scripture specifically to the gospel, specifically to what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus tells us in multiple places, all the scripture is really about him, that it has to speak about him. And so proclaim the word does not mean grab this verse here, grab that verse there, and talk about those as though they were in isolation from who Jesus is. Instead, you have to realize that the Bible is giving you an overall narrative a story arc, if you will, one that's holistic. The Bible is not a bunch of disconnected bits and pieces of good advice. It's not like a bag of marbles where someone just sort of collected all of these disconnected items and put them in the same container. Instead, the Bible's organic, all connected. It's all connected so that what God says in one place is connected to all of the others because all of them are connected to the big picture of who he is and what he's doing. And so the Bible is actually what? It, it's a window into God's heart. 
tells us about a God who refuses to let go of his creation, even though sin and evil have ruined it. But instead, God is in the process of saving it from sin and evil, even at great cost to himself. He is personally invested. And what tells us that he will not be satisfied until every last bit of evil has been analyzed, judged, and eliminated, so that at one point every part of his world will be in harmony with every other part, because each part will be in harmony with him. If you know the big picture, the story arc, the narrative, the gospel, the word, then you understand how to fit in all of the rest of Scripture. The individual pieces make sense in that larger narrative. And it's our job, it's our privilege in our various ministries, whether that ministry is to our spouse, to our children, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, it's our ministry to talk about that larger arc of who God is and what he's doing in such a way that people see why that's important to them. Because the goal is, as humans, that we would no longer be driven by our own passions, that we would no longer be driven by our own personal story arcs, no longer driven by the narrative of our own lives that are dominated by these super desires, that we would no longer live lives dominated by sin and evil. The goal of the Christian life of sound teaching is that by knowing and understanding God's arc, his narrative, that we go, man, that's so much better than the one that I was crafting, that we would then long to join our story with his, that we would long to enter into his story instead of demanding that he give us what we want, instead of demanding that he enter into our narrative, part of the sin and evil that's broke, ruined his world. That's first, we preach the word. We proclaim his word that tells his story. But second, when? When do we do this? In season and out of season. Think, well, that's pretty obvious, right? If what gets people in trouble in this world is our demand to have our desires satisfied, then we need to constantly call people, call ourselves back to the larger narrative of what God is doing. So why spell it out here? It's just obvious, right? Why say in season and out of season? It's because there was an idea philosophically in Paul and Timothy's day that if you wanted your words to be most effective, you had to pick the right time. You had to ask basically, am I likely to get a good hearing now? What, what's the probability of success? If the probability is high, then yes, I'll speak. If the probability is low, I won't. And God tells you, don't do that. Don't try to figure out whether or not people are open to hearing you. Instead, go ahead, just proclaim my narrative, my gospel, all the time, everywhere you go, in season and out of season. Now, why? Why shouldn't we try to pick the right time? Because if you think about it, that's a strategy that has no spiritual power to it. When we proclaim God's truth, sound teaching to someone. We're not relying on what we say to change someone else's heart. We can't. God is the heart changer. And so we're not relying on some persuasive strategy. We're relying on the Spirit of God empowering the Word of God that we've proclaimed. We're relying on that to bring light and life to someone else, that 
God would open up their eyes to the truth, that God would give them a desire for the truth. And there is no way that you can predict when that might happen. Only God knows because he's the heart changer. So if you only decide to speak because you feel like someone might be open, what are you doing? You're, you're trying to mind-read God. Or you're trying to take God's place and think, this is the moment where I can persuade someone. Your job as a minister, let me, let me take some burden off. Your job as a minister, as a priest, is not to produce results. You can't. That's beyond your calling. Your privilege is to speak in a way that honors God and his heart, that talks about him in his narrative, and then leave the results up to him. So first, preach the word. Second, all the time. Third, with some energy. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Again, let's go back to the big picture. Your ministry to the people around you means that you are going to bring God's perspective, his narrative, into their lives. In part, why? Because they're trying to live out a different narrative. That means that you're going to have to say things that are not the way they've been used to thinking. Sometimes you're going to have to correct, to reprove, rebuke, very strong words. I mean, you have to directly address someone. Be very clear with them about how they're carving out a path for themselves that's not going to end well. And that means that you and I have to get used to conflict because it's built into the nature of the ministries that God has given us. Ministry is a declaration to our husband or wife that he or she has been going off the rails. It's to our children that they're going in the wrong direction and need to turn around. It's to our friends and neighbors that they've got the whole point of life upside down. This is why Paul has put so much effort into telling us to expect to suffer. Because there's no way that you can be true to this incredible calling to the ministry that he's given you. There's no way you can be true to that without conflict, without suffering. It's just not going to happen. But fourth, be careful how you hear that. Because most of us, maybe all of us, have had very bad experiences with strong confrontation. Times where people have been harsh, they've been abrasive, abusive. And if you're going to confront in a way that is true to God's own story, that's true to the way that he confronts and corrects, then you have to do so, verse 2 again, with complete patience and teaching. Complete there means with great, great patience, a lot of patience. You're going to enter into these confrontations recognizing that it's not necessarily quick. It's definitely not explosive. It's patient. It's insanely patient. It's patient beyond when you think patience should have been exhausted. And it comes with complete teaching, with lots of teaching, lots of explanation. You have a real desire for the other person to get hold of this. It's not half-hearted. And so you'll bend over backwards. You'll spend hours thinking about how many different ways can I try to proclaim the word to this person so that they get what they need to hear. That's what you have to do in order to fulfill your ministry. And that would be hard enough if you had really good examples of that. Sadly, however, you don't always. And here I am going to point the finger at people who get paid to minister. I already made the point that the passage is not for professional 
ministry personnel. But there is a sense in which occupational ministers have an impact on us. They impact our expectations of what our own ministries should be like. And that expectation is not always positive. I once worked with a guy, I'm not going to name him, although Paul's not afraid to identify people. This guy was a pastor who used to give me advice about preaching, about proclaiming the word. It was advice I didn't always find helpful. Things like, well, you know what they say, if your sermon's going to be bad, it's better to be brief. I, 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 I didn't find that helpful. Or things like, you know, people on holiday weekends, they don't really want to come to church. They want to go home, they want to go to their picnic, so maybe we should make this weekend service shorter. What is that? That's not complete teaching. That's half-hearted. That's not being prepared in season and out of season. Instead, he's playing the percentages, trying to figure out the probability of whether people want to listen to the truth or not, and then basing his thoughts on his assessment of that probability. Listen long enough to someone like that, and you will expect not to be fed. You'll expect not to be challenged, not to be corrected, not to be encouraged. You'll expect to come to worship and what? Put in your time. You'll expect to get very little back from doing so. And you'll think that's what church is, and then that is the same approach that you will carry into your own ministry as well. With the same preparation, the same expectation. I managed the preaching schedule of that church. I never offered him another holiday weekend. Because if you're here on a Sunday morning, you have the right to expect to be fed. And to be fed as well as the preacher possibly can. I expect pastors to bring their A-game every time. I expect them to have sweated and labored over the message, not just to understand what the text says, but to understand why the congregation needs to hear that, to have worked hard to have some sense of how our storylines connect with God's storyline, and to have done the work to explain that well. You should expect that too. And you should expect that from yourself in your own ministry. Parents, you should expect that you have to spend a lot of time putting the work in, trying to figure out how do you connect your child and their need with the gospel. Husbands and wives, you should expect to work hard, to labor, to understand what your spouse needs and how those needs are met in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Friends, you should spend time thinking about what your friends need and how their need connects to God's storyline. Honestly, I have no idea how many hours I've spent walking around my neighborhood, driving in my car, sitting at my desk, thinking about the people in my life, my family, my friends, thinking about, asking, how does what God offers meet the need in his narrative somewhere of the need of the people with whom I'm living? I've spent hours, not because I'm a great minister, it's because ministry does not come naturally to me, doesn't come easily to me, and I have to put the time in if I'm going to fulfill my ministry. You do too.
That's how we minister. This is how we bring change into a dark world. We bring God's word into it. This is how people change. It's through the gospel narrative that we find in Scripture. We proclaim this God who is, and we proclaim what he's doing, and we invite people to see how much better he is than anything else they could ever want. Now, in closing, I can imagine someone saying, okay, Bill, I, okay, what I need to do is a little clearer. I'm not sure how to do that. What I need to do is clearer, but my struggle is different. I struggle with the motivational side of things. I'm afraid that I'll say the wrong thing and screw something up. I'm afraid that if I speak to my friend or my child, my parent, they won't like me. They'll stop wanting to be with me. What do I do with things like that? Here's where you need to proclaim the gospel to yourself. Where you need to preach the gospel to yourself. Where you need to connect your story arc with God's. Where you learn to get boldness, courage, passion from living in the reality that Jesus came, is coming to judge the living and the dead when he appears and establishes his kingdom. Think, okay, that's, that's esoteric. What, what, how does that help me? Think it through. Put the time in and see how your life is connected to his. Why can you take a risk of entering into someone's world, ministering to them? Why can you take the risk to, that you might say something wrong? It's because of what your priest, Jesus, did on the cross. He paid for everything that you have ever said or will say that is not part of God's story. So when he comes to judge the living and the dead, the judgment against all the foolish things you've said, against all the wrong things that you've said, the judgment will be paid in full. <laughs> Since there's nothing more to pay, you are freed up now to try your best in ministry. If you misspeak, you ask him to forgive you, and you experience that being paid for too. Or why would you take a risk being rejected by people who only want to hear what suits their own passions? Again, story arc, it's because Jesus Christ, when he connected you with himself on the cross, not only took from you what you deserve, he gave you what he deserves. Which means that right now you're part of the new creation. You're part of the kingdom that he brings when he appears. And because he made you part of his kingdom, no one can ever take that away from you. So even if you suffer here for the, what you say about him, it does not change the most important things about you. And in the end, it only shows which kingdom really matters to you. Or how do you know that you're not going to be controlled by your fears and worries that you'll serve him badly? How do you know that you won't be controlled by those things forever? It's because Jesus Christ died to set you free from the passions that have controlled you, that led you away from him. And he gave you his spirit inside to sanctify you so that your storyline keeps increasingly lining up with his storyline so that you keep desiring more and more the things he desires. How do you go about connecting your life with his? Take each thing that concerns you, that brings you joy, and see what that thing looks like in light of what Christ has already done. And then have a conversation. Talk with him about that. Tell him your fears and worries. Absolutely. Do more than that. Talk with him about how what he's done already can answers the concern that you have. And ask him for the faith to believe that he's better at rescuing you 
then you are ruining you. And as you experience that, you're going to find something. You're going to find a desire growing inside of you to fulfill your ministry because Jesus fulfilled his. Because of what he's done, one day you will stand in his presence, not to hear a charge, not fearful, not anxious. You'll stand in his presence happy. Happy because you'll start to realize just how much he wants you, just how much he loves you, delights in you. Lean into that experience, and you'll find that you can't help yourself from wanting to tell people around you about this great God, because there ain't anybody else like him. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've given us an incredible opportunity to serve you. Lord, that this is not our home. You haven't given us a physical inheritance on this planet. You've given us something better. You've given us the opportunity to bring you into every person's life around us. Lord, enter more fully by your Spirit into our lives. Give us that sense that you love us with incredible passion. So, Lord, we are that much more wanting to let other people know about you. In Jesus' name, amen.